religion, politics, philosophy, and science. You will be challenged. You will question everything you thought you believed. Prepare to be. back everybody back again this week we're talking with will again he is back by popular demand how are you will uh i'm doing good i'm interested uh the popular demand i want names <laughs> just kidding well there's us so oh hey. <laughs> i will accept it i i uh i i don't get a massive amount of emails and it seems like the majority of them tend to be kind of contentious when i get them but uh not always but, interesting um yeah uh joining me today is also jj he's on the panel hey hey and that's it this is going to be kind of more of a uh quiet quiet podcast like last week when we just had the three of us now it's jj myself and will and uh jj and will go way back uh you want to kind of go over because you uh you guys have kind of a history, right? Yeah, our first class together would have been first second grade. grade. First grade. I wasn't in first grade at Eastland. Oh, so then it must have been second grade. Huh. It would have been. I moved the. I moved to Eastland. Eastland is a tiny little town, uh, south of Kansas City. About an hour. It takes exactly an hour to drive from the house I grew up in in Eastland to Crown Center. Um, it, the population for the town was two hundred and eighty-six. And we were all the school there, which was in town, also served the nearby city of Gun City, G U N N, with a population. I believe it was seventy on the sign when I was growing yeah. up. Yeah, and, and we we were four of them. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Man, I thought my town was small where I grew up. Yeah, Will lived in Gun City and Gun City proper, and I lived in East Lynn proper. We, and we both I'm went to sure East Lynn. We, I'm not sure if we lived in the city limits, but we lived pretty close. Yeah, real close. And then, uh, so I moved oh, out. Oh, and then to there my was parents. Latour. And, yep, uh, Latour. Oh, all these incredibly tiny towns around. Yeah, towns where there, like towns that existed when there was a railroad road network that handled all the farming in the area a hundred years ago. Oh, yeah. And all of that's dissolved. East Lynn was a fairly famous railroad town in the late 1800s. And my, my, uh, my, Dad's grandparents grew up in a town called Garden City. No, not Garden yep. City. It was what's the uh, just down the road from Garden City? What's the name? Drexel. Of that one? No, not Drexel. Uric. No, much smaller. Oh, smaller than Uric. Oh, it's where um, my. I can't believe my my mom is going to yell at me when she hears this podcast because <laughs> it's where all my family is buried. Dayton. Dayton. And the the uh, everybody at Dayton, which is a grand total of I'm guessing twenty five to forty, they all talk about during the Civil War or before the Civil War they could have been Lawrence because they had uh, a, a little bitty college there before Mizzou before Missouri, but the uh, Jayhawkers came in and burned it down. <laughs> Man, it's, it's wild. Yeah, there's there's dozens and dozens and dozens of little towns all over this that area mm -hmm. of Missouri. 
and probably every that you know that might just be the nature of rural Missouri, if not rural America, but definitely most of rural Missouri is very much like that. Does yeah, dozens, Kansas? Dozens. Kansas has a lot more open ground. Uh, our our area where we grew up in Missouri, it seems like you drive five miles and there's another town the size of a postage stamp. Right. Yeah. Forty people. <laughs> exactly. I'm guessing been incorporated for 200 years, but everybody's moved out. You know, there's no jobs anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. Sounds like where I grew up. I'm guessing, too, probably Kansas is similar in terms of uh, like political and religious beliefs as where I grew up in Tennessee in rural, very, very Christian Tennessee. Oh, it's very red everywhere in the state except for Kansas City, like the Kansas City Metro and the St. Louis Metro are very blue. And the rest of the state is very red. Springfield is purplish. And you Joplin's kind of... starting to go purple. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, I would assume that uh, what's the town at, at Northwest Missouri State University, Maryville? Oh yeah. I, I assume that's you know any place that has a, a, a college might lean purple in the in 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 Missouri. I would bet. But now I'm out of my wheelhouse. I don't know the, the <laughs> demographics of the state that well. I know where Will and I grew up, and uh, we were in school together. When did you, your parents moved away? Was it fifth grade? Was the last grade we were together? It was fourth grade, right before fourth fifth grade. grade. Okay. And then I, I went to Erie, Kansas for the rest of my uh, public school education and uh, graduated in Erie. And it's interesting. Um, we move. I mean, Erie's a few miles or a few hours south of where we used to live, but it's not very f- far west. But honestly, it feels a lot more west. Kansas feels more like a big sky uh, uh, state than Missouri ever did. Oh, it, it totally. There are different biomes. Mm-hmm. Similar, but distinct. Yeah, you can tell when you're in Kansas versus when you're in the middle of Missouri. They they look very different. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, I grew up, went on, went through high school. At my senior year of high school, I started smoking cigarettes. I was a big rebel. Ooh. <laughs> and then uh, went to college, and I went to Mid-American Nazarene University. And my first semester there, I had a bunch of money because, I, you know, it's high school graduation. Grandparents gave me cash and whatnot, and I discovered eBay. So that first semester, I blew a bunch of money on car stereo equipment on eBay. The second semester, I blew a bunch of money on drugs. You and know, then, uh, I've oh, not, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I've never actually kind of heard your background or how you how you grew up and formed your, your kind of your current views. I know we tend to have really similar positions, um, but I've never really heard your your background story and already it sounds a lot more different than i was actually kind of predicting so this is actually kind of interesting <laughs> there's another there's another wrinkle we need to throw in here before jj goes on is yeah it's hard for us to i joked last time about gifted kid syndrome i was trying to be um self-effacing my mom said it sounded like humble bragging that being said jj and i are we're pretty bright as as uh, as young students, and uh, if anything, yeah, had they graded always, on a curve, we would have been setting the curve every year. And that, well, and I always felt when I was younger, there's a reason why when Mom called me out on my gifted kid syndrome, I would always punt to JJ. Is 
all things being equal, I think he's got a few more neurons firing than I do. That's not true anymore. Just, Wait till term, you hear the drug stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, in terms of just in terms of just raw intelligence, uh, I always I was always in, in awe uh, of, uh, of of when we were in our gifted classes together. I think I was always a little bit more focused on kind of history and stuff like that. And JJ always gave me the impression that he was a little bit more of a Renaissance man, even though he was one third my size. <laughs> <laughs> now I was uh, like, I've been interested in, in theoretical physics and particle physics since I was in elementary school. And I always wanted to be interested in those things. Like, like it's, it's weird. I wanted to be the guy who would fit in on the big bang theory, but <laughs> I always, I've, I've always naturally gravitated more towards the liberal arts. Huh. And I, I think that's very respectable. So I dabbled as a history major for one semester. That was the same semester I discovered drugs. <laughs> so what'd you do in high school? Because my high school was pretty, it was much like my elementary. I was still very conservative, very religious. And, um, didn't have any challenges to that. My senior year, I started to rebel against kind of my parents. As I said, I started smoking cigarettes, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's just that, that one little act of my own self-identity. Um, I never really had a, re- the most rebellious I ever did was I joined a fraternity in college just because I thought that would be the last thing my friends would think I would do. <laughs> and That's I, not I, the... I honor and respect my fraternity, but it was never, and they'll, my brothers would be the first to admit, I never really fit in. I just wasn't the type. Uh, I've never been much of a rebel. See, I, 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 I think I feel more like you, Will. I never really had the, uh, I, I never got into, I never did drugs. Uh, I never even smoked. Um, I kind of drank a little bit, but I don't mm. even really like getting drunk. So, yeah, yeah, I've. I, uh, well, I knew I knew early on by by high school I knew I had an addictive personality, mm. so I actively stayed away from things that I knew were addictive that I wasn't already messed up in, like uh, sugar. I know that sounds weak to somebody who's dealt with drugs, but or has been with drugs. No, but. I think a, com- a compulsive need to do something that your rational brain has already, you know, you've had this discussion with yourself and you said, I don't want to do this. It's not good for my future. I want to invest in my future, but still that the compulsivity that gets in your way and makes you carry on a regular behavior set against that rationality is kind of where I, I view addiction and I don't put it in the idea. Like I, I think addiction is still a roughly defined term, Yeah. but when I use the term, that's generally what I mean. It's well, like, so I can't I- help it. I'm going to do this even though I know better. And so I, I never, I still haven't even drank my first coffee or beer. I don't gamble and I don't do uh-huh. it so that I can be holier than, than other people. I, I fully believe that even for Christians, most of that stuff is still in the realm of uh, freedom of the believer, uh, to use a churchy term. Um, I just know for myself that it's, it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous waters and I just keep myself out of it. I would have been good to have. <laughs> <laughs> I I will admit that caffeine is a vice. Like that's how I function. That's how I get oh, up early gosh, and have yes. to go to work. Uh, without that, I'm I'm like dead and not, I'm kind of more irritable. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't and drink I, coffee, but I'll, I'll, oh, I'll I love uh, coffee. I can 
I can end a like if 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 uh, if I'm particularly thirsty, I could drink a two liter of Coke Zero in a meal. <laughs> I'm not proud of it. I'm not bragging. Man, it's so good. Uh, it's so good. I'm I'm a bit of a coffee addict. Like on my day off, that's one of the things that I like. I just love the smell. I love the taste. Uh, just a nice, rich, black, hearty coffee. Oh, so good. <sighs> now I wish I didn't have to work tomorrow. <laughs> so, so in college oh yeah go ahead i was i was just going to kind of uh bring you back in because i'm curious to kind of hear because uh, you you started off like i did and like like will as well we were all fairly conservative and and religious but uh i'm curious to kind of hear that path that you've taken so in college my second my first semester i got in an argument with my best friend Cause he'd started smoking marijuana and I said, that's bad for you, buddy. And he's like, no, it's not. You should look up some evidence. And I was like, I've seen a lot of evidence It's bad for you. And we were both in high school debate together. And so he was like, all right, let's do a cross sex debate. You get your evidence together and I'll get my evidence together. And we'll talk about this. We know how to do this. This is how we can look at the question. I said, I'm down, you know, I'll feisty now or debate. <laughs> and then I started looking at the evidence. And then I started looking at more evidence. Then I started looking at, you know, different research papers and the different claims and the problems with some of the wild claims that were put out by the United States government. And after a week of trying to prepare evidence against the, you know, whether or not marijuana was harmful, I was already like, I've been lied to my whole life and now I'm angry. Sorry to um, break up your story, but do you, at this point with your research, are you... Do you think that that at very least marijuana might be a dosage issue where it's not as uh, it's not as damaging in lower dosage but more damaging in higher dosages? No, I think actually it has more utility for therapy in higher doses. Hmm. I think that if if you want to talk about damage by dose, like the more marijuana you smoke, the more, worse it's going to be for your lungs. Right. Unrelated to the THC, just the the smoke itself. Now there is real evidence that people who are already predisposed to certain mental illnesses will have those illnesses exacerbated by the use of marijuana. Mm. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, there's good evidence that marijuana will cause long-term impairment if people use it before they're done, like the brain's done developing. So Makes I've told sense. all my kids that I don't want them to do pot until they're 25. Right. For that reason, I think that the therapeutic benefits of it are a part of, or just they need to be more explored in a, in a proper clinical setting with, with, you know, the good double blind studies and meta studies of stuff. And yeah, and we're just that, now getting into that, that. You and I are going to be in absolute agreement. I, mm -hmm. I believe that uh, we know enough about THC to believe that it has... Uh, a whole world of possible medical applications that we just haven't explored yet. I still think without a doubt, the most harmful thing that THC has ever had associated with it is its criminalization. Mm. Like the fact that people have ever gone to jail at all for marijuana has done more harm to their lives than the marijuana. I, you might could find some edge case and exceptions I am certain that they exist because I believe that everything's on a bell curve, more or less, you know. 
But by and large, I think it is still, to this day, the criminalization and the enforcement of laws that attempt to prohibit or curtail cannabis distribution in America have caused far more social cost than cannabis in America has ever done by itself. Okay, so you threw the towel in on your debate. Uh, what's the next stage of your story? <laughs> um, so I tried it once when I was out at uh, Walnut Valley Bluegrass Festival um, in the trouble zone, and I took one hit and I coughed to death and I didn't like it. So I went back to college, and that was in September, still first semester. And then I started because, you know, I'm a nerd. I started getting online and researching other drugs because I was interested now. I'd been lied to about marijuana. What else was out there to be known? Um, and the more I researched all these drugs, the more I wanted to try them. I was very curious. But at a Christian college, here I am at a very Christian college. I know nobody that does any drugs. Nobody. Except for, you know, my friend that is not at the Christian college. He's a couple hours away. And I was like, I want to do some drug. Surely there's some drug that's legal. And I discovered dextromethorphan. All right. Let me make this abundantly clear. I'm going to say this on the podcast. Don't do this drug. <laughs> do not abuse cough syrup. The more you know. It will... I used to be able to do three-digit by three-digit multiplication in my head. You could ask me what 813 times 697 is, and I would sit there and I could kind of look out, and I could imagine the numbers like on a whiteboard in front of me. And I can't do that. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older, but maybe it's because I did a lot of cough syrup. I was doing... Because if you, if you take a lot of it, you have, you know, a, a very uh, surreal experience. It's in the same family of drugs as ketamine and PCP. They're all dissociative anesthetics. All right. You're going to have to, you're going to have to um, uh, indulge the neophyte here. Um, when you say cough syrup, is that a, uh, a slang term or is it? No, that is Robitussin. It is the active ingredient in over-the-counter cough syrups. It's called dextromethorphan hydrobromide. And in and, responsible cough syrup doses, what it does is it dissociates your brain from the sensations of your body that are telling you that you need to cough, which okay. reduces the urge to cough because huh. it's a dissociative. And the dosage in there, I think it's 30 milligrams for, you know, a cough syrup dose. So I was taking 800 to 1,000 milligrams at a time, which will make you really useless. For days, at you know, and here I am tripping, day on, day off at my Christian campus. This is second semester at this point. Um, but like I'd learned about this, and then I found like all you know. Finally, you do find other people at the Christian campus that do drugs because Christians are just people. Um, well, not only I, that, but uh, not only that, but I've I've found in my experience that, um, what. That you get a specific demographic of people that go to Christian schools, and that are that is people whose parents take their faith really seriously, and think that sending their kid to a Christian college is like sending them to vacation Bible school for four years, hoping Jesus will rub off on them. And so you end up getting a lot of people who 
may or may not eventually have a strong Christian faith, but at, at the current point, they really don't, and they tend to find each other at, at the, these colleges. And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it develops kind of a spirit of rebellion. Kind of like the preacher kid effect. Exactly, or the missionary kid, yeah, same thing. And and that was not wrong. I mean, everyone that I was partying with there, they were all very Christian, but sort of in the the the, the definitely not conservative. <laughs> um, like they still all very much believed in the transcendent spirit of God and the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus was the Son of God. Um. I was the only atheist that I knew about on campus after I came out as atheist. That's coming later, but I'll hurry to it. So anyhow, I did a bunch of drugs, did too many drugs to keep up with my studies and dropped out. Joined a ha- moved into a house with a buddy of mine, which turned into a hippie commune slash flop house. Uh, got raided by the KCPD. This was all in a six-month period of time. Uh, moved home. Moved into another apartment with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, another friend moved in. Then a few more friends moved in. It turned into another hippie commune. Um, I moved out because I wasn't interested in doing some of the hard drugs that were going on at the house anymore. Like, I just wanted to get stoned. And I was like, I don't like this anymore. So I moved home again. Two weeks later, they got raided. Um, my timing was good on that one. I had nothing <laughs> to do with that. Wink, wink. Um, then I went back to MNU after all that. And that was like, you know, three or four years. Um, I decided that I was going to get back on the straight and narrow. Like I had remained a Christian through all this, just very liberal. I was very un- unimpressed with, you know, the status quo of things. Um, so I went back to college and, uh, ended up getting this girl I was seeing pregnant. But uh, we ended up not staying together at the time. So here I am at college. My best friend and I found a ridiculously good deal on a house for rent that was a half mile from campus. You know, this is back at Mid-American Nazarene University. And so I was a single dad and raised a kid and finished my degree in uh, music performance on concentration on guitar at Mid-America and that went from 2004 to the, you know, uh, spring semester of 2009 was when I graduated. It was fall of 2008 that I uh, decided I didn't believe in God anymore and came out as an atheist. Might have been 07. Because I feel like it was my junior year. And also, wasn't it 2008 when we rediscovered each other on on, uh, line? Yeah. Because we hadn't so much as said hello in in the days before social media. And then I got onto Facebook as a campus minister in Michigan State because that was was how we were staying in communication with all the the students. And uh, you were one of the first people I added on Facebook. I was like, hey, are you the same little kid that <laughs> from East Lynn? <laughs> so we, we got caught up. And by that point, you you were already pretty strong atheist by 2008. That, that pretty much dominated so a lot of our that, conversations. It must have been the summer of 2007. It might have been summer of 2008. It's been a long time. I've done a lot of drugs since then. Um <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, it's was, it was towards the end of my tenure at Mid American Ezra University that I lost my faith. And uh, then I went through and I was an angry atheist for quite some time. And uh, yeah, you know, it took about a decade or so, but eventually I got less angry. And then eventually I decided that I wasn't, atheism wasn't, I wasn't as sympathetic to the idea of like a strong atheism as I was towards the idea of uh, theological non-cognitivism. And that's still really appealing to me. I feel like you're wanting one of us to ask what's theological non-cognitivism. Only if you need to. What's theological non-cognitivism? <laughs> I think I could break it down etymologically, but I think it'd be easier just for you to explain what you mean. Uh, when somebody in philosophy talks about something being non-cognitivist, what they're saying is that you it's a, a subject with which you cannot make truth claims. Hmm. Like if you are a moral non-cognitivist, you don't believe that you can make moral statements that are true or false. Oh, and there right. are whole... There are whole families of moral non-cognitivists, from the ones that think you're uttering utter balderdash, uh, and if you listen to the the Ben Watkins when he went over some of them, and then there are people like that think that it, you can make statements, but it's sort of like close the door, like it's not true or false; it's just a, a, an instruction statement. So that would it would still be non-cognitive moral statements would still be non-cognitive in that manner. Um, what universal prescriptivism, I think, is the name of that one. And then there's the um, you can actually have other non cognitive positions. And the theological one is the idea that if there is like a transcendent, you know, transcendent spirit outside of space and time in the universe, it becomes very hard to actually make true and false claims about that object. Silence. All right. <laughs> like uh, an example that I always go to is like, God loves you. If you're going to make the claim, God loves you, you are injecting your understanding of love onto this object, you know, this, the, the transcendent God. But we know that when people are talking about love, there's a certain set of neurons firing. There are neurotransmitters in action uh, oxytocin, you know, dopamine, serotonin, the only things you've ever really loved, norepinephrine. Um, we know that this thing is happening in us when we are experiencing what we define as love. And, and so, yeah. And so you're saying that without, um, that, that this, uh, transcendent spirit being not having those chemicals or neurons, uh, couldn't be experiencing love in the same way, it, and if it, he no, is, I, we, we I, couldn't I, know it. Right. I can't say that he's that the spirit wouldn't be experiencing it in that same way. I have no way of knowing or measuring or making a or making a truth claim. Like, uh, you know, have you ever heard of the Thomas Nagel's essay? What it, what it's like to be a bat? I have not. He, he's a, a panpsychist and he talks a lot about consciousness and he talks about, you know, like bats have sonar. Like mm -hmm. when we go out into the world and we smell fresh cut grass, you know, somebody's running the lawnmower, you know, that smell, you know, mm -hmm. that feeling when you smell fresh cut gra grass. Yeah. The, the feeling when you, uh, 
look outside and it's a really nice sunny day and you can feel the sun coming through and you put your hand on the windowsill and you feel that warmth, all of that qualia, you know, that those things that you are feeling, the phenomenology of your experience, a bat is having that too. But we know that it's different than us and we cannot know what that experience is like. But it must be having that experience because there are parts that we share in common. You know, both our brains and the bat brains have many parts in common that are the same parts that are associated with experiencing. I can't, per, like, I don't know how to map that onto a transcendent exist outside of space and time being. So I've, I've, I've found that I'm very, I'm, I'm a lot more comfortable just being hesitant to make true and false claims about that actual transcendent entity. All right. Let, let me ask you, um, on a thought experiment level, um, in a, in a world where, um, where JJ never, uh, has that roommate, never decides to do a, a research study on marijuana and somehow never crosses those lines. Do you think you would have ended up at the same place theologically that you are today? I don't know. Well, I mean, th uh, uh, throw out, a, I guess, I mean, what I'm trying to get at is how much do you think your experience in the early days of adulthood led you to the theological and philosophical positions you hold today? Um, I think that there might be some relationship to my comfort rejecting what authority tells me. Back when I discovered, because it, when I was researching about marijuana, it's not that marijuana is not harmful at all. I didn't think that. But there was clear evidence that the authority figures in my past had built up a case based upon maliciously false premises. Now, interestingly enough, since since you tied that into your um Rebellion, what you believe is is a, a, a uh, at least a modicum of a rebellious nature. Thomas, I want to contrast that with your story since you said earlier that you don't think of yourself as much as a rebel. Um, right. Compare and contrast JJ's story thus far with yours. And uh, ha since you don't have that rebellious streak that led you to a point of atheism, what do you think was the contributing primary factors? I would say similar to kind of JJ's experience recognizing that he had been lied to. I did have something of a similar experience for myself, although it was probably quite a bit later. It was in my 20s. Um, part of it literally just had to do with me having a curiosity with understanding people that I didn't agree with. Um, because I was, you know, out of high school and I went to a, a Christian school and then went through Christian homeschool through high school. So I was still very much in that world. And then I went off to work. And in my job, I had a lot of downtime because uh, I would sit in a utility trailer for, you know, eight to 12 hours a day, um, just doing monotonous work. So I could listen to books or radio or whatever for however many hours a day I wanted to. Um, really where it kind of started was literally just listening to like NPR because I wanted to hear, you know, a different take on the news that I was because I listened to a lot of like conservative talk radio. Um, 
I had always kind of had an interest in science, although I would argue my education didn't give me a very good sense of what science actually is. Uh, I understood science as just kind of being interested in sciencey things, you know, just facts and and whatnot, how things work. Um, I didn't really recognize at that point that it's it's a philosophical approach of you know determining what's true and what isn't. Um, I started listening to like college uh, professors, um, you know, giving talks on the internet. I just recorded classes, uh, listening to like the philosophy of science, uh, listening to scientific things that I didn't agree with, but didn't understand like evolution and, um, you know, various different things, climate science, all these things that I as a conservative didn't agree with. And as I started gaining like a grasp of just like the basics of like how biological evolution works, um, starting to recognize the amount of evidence in support of something like that and not just from one field but from all kinds of different fields you know geologically everything lines up with you know um, genetics and bio biology and uh, pretty much all these different scientific fields that are independent of each other are coming to you know the same conclusions and once I started recognizing that then like the things that I knew that I had previously believed were harder to believe uh, just because they weren't based on that same kind of a rigorous process of, you know, trying to weed out what's false and and believe what's true or look for evidence to, to find what's true. It was all kind of based on a, uh, a presupposition of we believe this to be true. And, you know, there were plenty of instances of people looking for evidence to support that, but there were also plenty of, of cases where when something contradicted it, they would try to explain it away, you know, like the starlight issue. Well, there's stars millions of light years away. How can the universe be 10,000 years old? Oh, well, God created the light. Um, he just created the light between us and the stars to give the appearance of age. I mean, these kind of answers were repeated over and over. And I, I would say that having such a far extreme right-wing version of of my faith probably made it more rigid and easier to collapse um, because it was, you know, so far. But whenever I started recognizing, you know, logical fallacies that I was committing, beliefs that I had previously held just became harder for me to convince myself of. And the more I started retraining myself how to think more critically, the more I started having to reconstruct you know, beliefs that I held on pretty much everything. Um, I kind of had like a, a wipe the slate clean and let's just rebuild from the ground up. Um, so it was kind of a, just a process of me realizing that, yeah, I can be very wrong about a lot of things and it takes a lot of work and um, discipline to be able to actually, you know, kind of work through a lot of your own biases and, and you know, learn how to decipher uh, evidence and how to be critical and skeptical and that on kind of a long term, you know, over the, the course of several years, um, I just fell more and more away from, you know, having such confidence in my religious beliefs and more into like the, the agnostic camp. And at some point I realized I don't believe any of this anymore. I, I just can't convince myself that it's actually true because uh, every every belief that I'm basing it on was 
built on some sort of logical fallacy or something. So um, I just never was able to cross back over into that belief system. I just kind of had to start over. Uh, so there are elements that are similar, um, but that was kind of my process. Yeah, interesting. I really appreciate uh, the background. I think a lot of times we as Christians don't actually um, bother to sit and listen to other people and their uh, their stories and try to understand where they come from. Instead, we try to create this image of uh, atheists and we try to just assume what they believe, what they don't believe, and then it becomes kind of a straw man to, to tear down. Uh, I mean, I literally remember the first time that I, I realized, because someone I defined the word atheist, and it was, uh, that's just lacking atheistic belief. It's atheistic. And once I heard that that definition, it was, I, I literally remember in my, you know, mid to early 20s, looking in a mirror, <laughs> saying to myself, wow, I'm an atheist. And it was a weird moment because I'd never identified that way. I never wanted to identify that way. I never chose that path. All I chose was, you know, to know the truth. I literally, it kind of towards the beginning of that process of me just kind of wanting to discover new perspectives. I remember praying to God, you know, I don't care what the truth is. I just want to know what it is. I, I don't want to believe things that aren't true. And in a way, I almost feel like that was kind of me giving myself permission to question things. Now, interesting, you, you, um, I've, I've noticed this a lot because I listen to um, uh, the Unbelievable podcast out of England as well as yep. other. Uh, I love that one. Really? I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I haven't heard it. Man, oh, it's, should... the, one, the episode with Roger Penrose and William Lane Craig was were... classic. Um, it, hmm. I, I have a lot of respect for William Lane Craig, even though I think he sounds like a the Christian version of a used car salesman a lot of the time <laughs> in debates. Uh -huh. Well, the problem, the reason is because he's he's given the same every time he debates, he gives the same position, so it sounds canned because the, at least the early speeches in his debate always are. I was I was under the impression also that he has like when he debates people, there's like only four topics that he'll do a debate on. Like he really like if he's going to have a public I don't, discussion. I don't know. I've heard I've heard, I've heard him give. I think that's true, but I th he allows a, a great deal of variation. Right. Yeah. He, like he, it, uh, they don't have to use the same. You have to choose one of these four uh, uh, statements. Like it's not that narrow, but but he, like he always he always uses about the same four or five arguments, and every once in a while he'll he'll throw in the ontological argument, not necessarily because mm -hmm. he thinks it's a strong argument, just to throw off his opponent. Man, um, the ontological the argument. Oh. Yeah, I, I, hey, I'm with you on that one. Actually, um, I think the ontological argument is an extraordinary thought exercise and not evidence at all. Um, the the thing is, it, here's the thing about William Lane Craig. Take some time to read what James White says about William Lane Craig or some other Christian apologists. He gets plenty of flack from our camp. Um. And, and a lot of it is because William Lane Craig actually is far more open-minded than a lot of people think he is. Like, mm -hmm. uh, re read some of his stuff. He's got a book coming out this year about the, the genealogical Adam. His – what word should I use? His, the, the, the realm of possibilities he's willing to allow for a genealogical Adam, he's, he's certainly not pushing a 
Ken Ham answers in Genesis 10,000 no, no. years position, nor is he actually necessarily coming out with a position that says those people are stupid. It's he, he's, he's maintaining a, a, um, um, like, like a, 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 a realm or a domain of possible interpretations that are defensible by both, uh, scripture and the evidence outside of scripture that we have available. I, and and I'll, I'll give him credit. I, I've read his academic work, like his, you know, his, his you know, trade papers, and they're not the stuff that you see when he's debating some public figure, you know, some new new atheist or something. Yeah. Like he can do and has done and has a massive amount of rigorous academic philosophy, academia, you know, academic philosophy of religion mm-hmm. ink spilled. Well, and, He has and done a ton of work, and it's really I, hard work. I've got to admit, this is actually a podcast I want to do soon about Ravi Zacharias and mm. the amount of um, of personal heartbreak I have over that entire situation. And one of the things that was really – we all should have had our haunches up about Ravi earlier on is because Ravi has always lied about his academic credentials. Yeah. And I never knew that. And William Lane Craig has – serious academic credentials yeah. on, on two different continents, three different, four different institutions. I mean, he's, he, he's not a slouch. As I said, yeah, he, his, his homework is serious. I'm, and I mean, my, kind of my experience is I grew up kind of more in the Kinham culture. Um, I feel like had I grown up in a more liberal Christian world uh or even you know, not more, liberal not even liberal they're, but they're, more they're, academic yeah, or more open-minded there you go because there's I, a, there's an entire uh, school of evangelical scholars who are are willing to allow flexibility in in the text where flexibility is allowed that's a very key word um and that's kind of where i i think had i grown up kind of more in that kind of an environment I might have been less likely to question. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I'm kind of glad that I wasn't because the the very spark that caused me to first start questioning was what caused me to start being more skeptical and more critical. And I think if you're not really prompted to start that, you can get away with a lot more of believing things that may not necessarily be true because you lack that skepticism. So I, I am kind of thankful that I, one, that I've, I've been in that world just because it did spark that, that skepticism. But also, two, um, I can actually identify with the people that still live in that world where had I not, I don't think I would have – I, I wouldn't be able to comprehend how you could possibly, you know, live in a, uh, an existence where you believe that – you know, the universe is, is 10,000 years old or that the world is flat or, you know, that any number of things that all of, you know, humanity came from two people, uh, you know, several thousand years ago or that they, we all, you know, came from, you know, Noah's family on a, on a global flood. Uh, those stories, I don't, I think I would have a lot less respect for the people that hold those beliefs now had I not believed them myself. Well, and somewhere in the nether regions of the internet, there's probably a um, a lect- lectures too lofty of a term. It's like I'm a professor or something. I gave I gave a, a series of talks at a church I used to belong to 
um, where I actually defended young earth creationism, but I did it in a way that would have made answers in Genesis cringe because uh, like one of you guys said earlier, the idea that, uh, well, you know, the stars are millions of light years away. How could they be 10,000 years old? And then somebody says, well, maybe God put the light there, you know. Uh, uh, that was John image. McKay's answer, by the way, <laughs> if you've ever well, heard of John McKay. Well, here's the thing. I, I, I took that idea and I ran with it because there's there's a key here that I think Chris, should give Christians a certain amount of humility that almost nobody catches. And that is this. If God did, in fact, create the world, and I'm using world universally, like right. the, universe. the universe. He created the universe with a, a certain amount of used utility to it. So for instance, plants are able to grow in soil right out of the gate, which means God it would have had to create soil that had uh, imitation death in it. An apparent age. Yeah, apparent age. Right. Here's the thing though. Here's the thing that nobody seems to catch. If that's the case, if God really did create the universe with an apparent age. And by the way, there's nothing in scripture that says he did this. But if he did, then we as Christians should be humble when scientists study that. Because if a scientist gathers some evidence that says the earth, the universe is 13.7 billion years old, and in, in, in our little thought experiment, the earth is actually only a few thousand years old, but God created it to look 13.7 billion years old, then the scientist is not being duplicitous. He's not trying to pull the wool over our eyes. He's doing exactly, or he or she is doing exactly what she should be doing by following the evidence where it leads. And so we as Christians should have a level of uh, flexibility, humility, to allow science to do scientists to do science the right way and not expecting them to start from a position of scripture. That's a weird kind of solipsism. Maybe. <laughs> and I, I, and even then I wasn't saying that's the case. I wasn't saying that. No, yeah, I don't style. I don't think that this yeah. is like this is a hard yeah, position I, that you're advocating no. for right now. No, I, mean, I, I was I was basically saying basically my position was even if this is your position, be humble about it. Don't make it a culture war. But I mean, to me as a Christian, when I heard that in high school, because John McKay is he's like a, a, a young cre young Earth creationist geologist, and he took us out on a fossil dig, and he would do this like every year. He'd come to our church, and he travels all over the country doing this and took us on a fossil dig and gave us his creationism spiel and had a questions and, and uh, answers, you know, segment at the very end of his thing. And some woman asked that. And I remember thinking what n the nerve that she has to question, you know, this, that's, that's, that's just almost blasphemous. And he gave that answer. And at the time, you know, I'm a high schooler. I'm, I, it, it was, it, it he addressed the question. He didn't just ignore it, but that sat with me for years. Like it just planted, and the longer it sat there, the more it festered, and the more I became uncomfortable with that as just a, a cop out answer. I mean, it was it wasn't him genuinely seeking truth. It was him trying to explain away his existing beliefs, and so I think that was actually. 
it was intended to explain it away, but I think it was actually very damaging in the long run to his his case, just because. Yeah, I, and it, especially it, if if he's pushing that position very hard, because here's the other thing: if God does create a universe with a, a, a parent age to it, so that it functions. To be fair, he said it could. We would have no evidence. We would have no evidence that that that's the case. Right. I and I mean to be fair, he didn't say that that is what happened. He said that it could be, but like, why not just say I don't know that that actually seems to contradict, you know, what I've what I've explained. Um, he he wasn't willing to admit that that could be a contradiction. He just kind of pitched it more as well. There could be any number of explanations for that, and here's one. Um, which to me just seems disingenuous. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I'm not going to argue that point. I, I just, um, my, from, from where I'm at, I, I would have a hard time trying to argue these topics with you guys anyway, because I'm already playing behind the eight ball. I've not done the academic grunt work to be able to, um, uh, explain my position rigorously here. My position would be turning around and preaching to my choir and saying, okay, here's the thing. Not every atheist and not every scientist who's not taking a position on theism is against you. They're not trying to destroy your faith. They're not trying to do some kind, they're not trying to take away your guns. They're not trying to uh, force any kind of culture war thing going on. Let's relax and let them do their job. Um, See. Yeah. And I have kind of a a hard time fulfilling that stereotype that they might have um, <laughs> to some degree, just because while I respect your right to have your own beliefs, and I absolutely do respect that right, and I've I I will fight for that right for you to have different contrasting beliefs than what I that what I hold. However, I also care just as a christian you know and i don't blame christians who who want to try to convince people um to save their souls because i think they're doing that out of gen generally out of sincere care for the well-being of the people around them except if you can keys the doors yes <laughs> right so <laughs> with that same motivation i've recognized a lot of the harm that a lot of those beliefs did on me without my recognizing it until after I was already out. And some, you know, I didn't even choose to try to eject myself from the faith. I didn't rebel out of it. But having been on the other side, I've started recognizing things that are actually harmful, you know, ideas that I used to hold. So, like, just the same way that I might view, you know, someone's Muslim beliefs or someone's belief in, you know, pseudosciences, you know, particularly with medicine, um, you know, I believe those to be potentially damaging to them and potentially damaging to society, I still would want to try to get people to question things that I don't think are necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Because you don't exist in a bubble. I mean, you vote. You, you, know, you exist in society. Um, you're interacting with the people around you, and your beliefs will influence your actions. So I, th I think it is important you know, um, for people to not believe things that are not true. And that is something that I, I would want to try to pull somebody out of, uh, whether, you know, whatever their belief is, if it's something that can demonstrably be, you know, false and harmful, I would want to try to, otherwise, I mean, I could just let people have their beliefs, but they then go take those beliefs and vote on them and, and behave on them. So 
you know, there there is kind of that that element of to some degree I kind of do want people to abandon their faith, not because I I have anything against them, but because I I genuinely believe it's doing them harm in a lot of cases, not every case. I I would I would repackage I mean, obviously, I'd, I would have to, or else I would be an atheist. Um, I, I would repackage your concern and say that I share it to a certain extent. I would want, especially these days, I've been very alarmed at the behavior of so many evangelicals, not only famous ones you had heard of, but local ones, you know, just down the road from me. Um, our willingness to believe and accept anything. Yeah. That Bill Gates, who's hemorrhaging money, He's trying to lose 90% of his wealth before he dies. The Bill Gates, who's hemorrhaging money, has created this pandemic in order to make a trillion dollars and to put a tracking chip into everybody. For world uh, domination. <laughs> and, and oh my gosh. And, and by the way, you know, if anybody's ever had a tracking chip put into your dog, you know how big that needle has to be. There's no possible way they're getting a tracking chip into you with a, a, an injection. My point is, or you know, with a with a uh, uh, vaccination injected, my point is there needs to be a certain level of incredulity, a certain level of humility, of being willing to question all of our beliefs, even our most sacred beliefs, and at very least saying, "Why do I believe this? What is my warrant?" Even if we come to a position you guys won't accept, which is revelation. Uh, that uh, I hold this belief because it's written this way in the book of Ephesians. I think uh, Christians would be shocked to realize just how many of their beliefs really probably ought to go away, and especially these kind of new uh, conspiracy theory-esque beliefs that Christians are unfortunately just proving themselves to be so susceptible to these days. Do you think that kind of the faith culture sort of primes people towards that sort of thinking? I think it, it might be faith. I think, it, I think honestly, I think it's more the conservative culture war because I've kind of got my foot on both sides of the liberal Christian divide or liberal conservative Christian divide because I, my formative years were as a Methodist and then, uh, realizing that I really was too conservative for the United Methodist Church, I ended up finding myself as a Southern Baptist, which is what I was when I was a small kid. Uh, yeah, I'm so, a Southern Baptist too. And 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 I uh, and 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 currently my the Southern Baptist culture I, I exist in today is one that, that scares me a little bit, but also I see a lot of uh Christians that remind me more of myself who are willing to question things we believe, trying to ask, uh, and it's really far simpler than we're making it sound. It's really just asking ourselves, why do I believe this or that specific thing? And being willing to dump or readjust beliefs that, that don't have warrant. I think far too many Christians, even without realizing it, get too much of their theology from Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Fox News, Newsmax, much in the same way that Christians in the Middle Ages got too much of their theology from Dante. Mm. <laughs> I'm glad that was funny, but <laughs> that seriously, I mean, our, our current theology of hell 
Man, is people guided have, as much by Dante as it is by the Book of Revelation. People have no idea how important Dante's clearly allegorical writing has cemented itself in the minds of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, especially the Western European and just Western culture. Like it is shocking. There is a um, there's um, a German scholar whose name totally escapes me in the 1900s. No, Scottish scholar whose name still totally escapes me in the 1900s that said, uh, "I don't care who writes the laws of a nation. Let me write its songs." And and our art and unfortunately, I'm considering cri- uh, conservative talk radio and conservative. Uh, New cable news as art because that's basically what it is. It's an opinion, yeah. Uh, thing, the, the art drives our philosophy and theology far more than we think than it should. Um, most people don't have a rigorous, self-examined position on anything, let alone everything. Right. I think I- and. Uh- I think most people don't appreciate how often their positions are wrong. Yeah. Like, but, and and I think that's natural. Like, you don't ever go through and be like, well, I'm pretty sure I'm wrong about this, but I'm going to believe it anyway. A, 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 a philosophy professor um, explained something that I hadn't really considered. And after kind of adopting that, I think it's really healthy. And that was, you know, when you're right about something, that's cool. I mean, you're right. But being able to embrace when you're wrong is actually far greater because when you're wrong about something and you recognize that you are now given the opportunity to gain, you know, from your current position to a better one. So, you know, just embracing the possibility of being wrong about things and actually getting excited about that because of the opportunity to improve yourself should be, a, you know, something that we, we do. And it's, it's typically not. And uh, one of the things, this is a little off topic, but in my mind, it, it, it's directly analogous. So let me just run with it. I have a certain level of appreciation for those whose, whose faith has been deconstructed to some, some brand of atheism because I know my visceral reaction when something I've believed for a long time proves to be totally false. And for me, it was JFK conspiracy theories. <laughs> because I was Uh-oh. I was deep in the 90s, all the way through high school, I was deep in the JFK conspiracy theory thing. I thought there's no possible way. It was, it was the CIA, it was the Cubans, it was Johnson, it was something, you know, it was something. So then I actually started doing some reading and various sources and come to find out that Lee Harvey Oswald had motive, opportunity, he had a newspaper saying exactly where the president was going to be at what time. He had just enough military training to be able to pull off the shot without much difficulty. He had the right um, uh, emotional profile to be the kind of person to have kind of delusions of grandeur. It, 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 it's really an open and shut case. The reason why conspiracy theories keep abounding is because the Warren Commission was done sloppily. Johnson is a notorious, semi-corrupt character in American history, and we just find it hard to believe that such an important person as the President of the United States could be taken out by somebody as insignificant as a part-time 
mostly unemployed worker at a Texas school book depository. So when I started to realize that the evidence was actually very strongly in favor of a single shooter from the sixth story of the Texas School Book Depository, then I felt absolutely lied to, not the least of which by the movie JFK. And I got really viscerally angry at those sources that I felt had lied to me for 10 years. I can imagine if that's just on a JFK conspiracy theory that doesn't really honestly affect me very much, I can't imagine the kind of emotions that can be behind when somebody believes, I'll, I'll use the word realizes, but once somebody realizes or believes that, that they've been lied to about the whole God thing, I can, I can appreciate or at least I can empathize with the kind of emotional reaction that would come from that. Yeah. I mean, I, I did the, the whole angry atheist phase for a while and eventually kind of calmed down from that. I think that's common just for the reason that you kind of explained. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, I think there are some parallels with, uh, you know, uh, religious faith and some conspiracy theory, especially in, in um, the way that people tend to try to, you know, like counselors try to effectively pull people back out of uh, those beliefs. There's a lot of psychology involved of trying to make sure that people are able to kind of maintain their dignity while recognizing that they may hold beliefs that aren't necessarily true. Um, so I, I, Hey, before I always wonder about that, holding beliefs that, that you, that aren't necessarily true. Like all beliefs are inductive in a way. Right. Um, and sometimes one thing that really gets to me and that would get to me when I was doing drugs. Oh, I got some drug stories, man. We haven't even cracked the surface (laughs) of my drug stories. Um, but one of the things that I would think about is like, I have been wrong about many things in my past. And when I was wrong about those things, I felt certain about them in the same way that I feel certain, or at least I felt confident about them right. in the same way that I feel confident now. Um, and I'm always concerned if that, if that is a, a snake that just continues to eat its own tail forever. I like might, is every belief that you could ever hold actually going to be wrong. I I tend to I kind know. of push no, because, back on that because it, 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 beliefs like I believe gasoline is an effective fuel for an internal combustion engine is totally backed by science. Science that doesn't make it not a belief, and so not every belief is 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 bound to topple in, into uh, failure. Um. But I think that when you say a sentence like that, you, the sentence was, uh, you believe that gasoline, what was the exact wording? Is an effective fuel for an internal combustion engine. You're right. I was just coming up with a ridiculous example. No, it, it, it's a perfectly ordinary, mundane sentence. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the kind of thing that you could just have a belief about. And your belief in that is required, it, is, it hinges on the fact that you actually know what gasoline is. Rather than you're using gasoline as a language placeholder for a series of events that you actually don't have completely explained. Hey, if you guys don't mind, before we close out, I want to contrast my experience real quick, and I, I will make it real quick. Let's do that, yeah, and let's plan was, on let's yeah, plan on picking that. this up. Um, my um, 
I came out of, of high school and went to college and I went to, uh, uh, you know, basically Great Plains University. It's Emporia State University in Kansas. And I really liked college. I enjoyed it. Uh, but my, my college experience wasn't uh, overly typical. It wouldn't have fit into a very good uh, late 90s comedy, you know, movie. But a few things that happened to me really were typical. One is the, uh, the when you first become an adult and you really are the absolute arbiter of your time, you end up finding yourself on dorm room conversations that last till 4.30 in the morning hmm. where not much is discussed of any value after two. Um, <laughs> another one is falling in love very early with, uh, with someone who, in hindsight, you probably shouldn't have, um, have, have tried to go down that path with. Uh, and, and it wasn't her fault. She, the, the, uh, she's a, a great person, still is a great person, a little bit on the conservative side politically, uh, than I am. But we, uh, she was Catholic and I was not, but I was absolutely smitten. So I kept pushing, not at a, on an abusive level, but certainly on a, I was 19 and very dumb and, um, not taking the hints that she wasn't interested level. Uh, and and it, it would have been easier if she wasn't interested in me as a friend either, but we were basically best friends that first semester. So I, f I, f I fell head over heels for her. And then when she started dating a guy who I perceived as a rival, man, I, 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 I came down pretty much to my lowest point emotionally in my entire life. At one point, I call my mom and I just basically cry on the phone for 30 minutes. I didn't really have any words to say. Uh, that was also the semester when I realized that my, uh, my degree, which was going to be elementary education, that I was not cut out for elementary education at all. Um, I was failing a class because I wasn't showing up to it. I ended up passing eventually. That's a long story in and of itself. Um, and then I got bronchitis and laryngitis at the same time. And all of this is happening while I'm having serious, significant, unanswered questions about my faith. Nobody was, was answering the, the questions. However, what I think is different in my story than a lot of stories is I never, I always wanted God to be true. For me, it was always just an intellectual exercise. I just came to the point where I felt like if these questions aren't getting answered, maybe it's because they can't be answered. For me, what happened is I got introduced to the entire world of academic apologetics, uh, which created a, for the last 22 years, uh, I've been interested in at, you know, at certain times more interested, certain times maybe a little less and realizing that even though apologetics doesn't always give us the right answer, at least it's trying to give us an answer, and in many cases gives us a compelling answer, or at least gives me a compelling answer. <laughs> and so I found, I found a place in, uh, intellectually and, to be honest, emotionally, where I could be a, an intellectually fulfilled evangelical Christian. And so my descent into atheism, which I honestly felt was probably just weeks away, uh, was was halted. And to this day, I just ha I really haven't felt a draw to 
no longer believing that there's a God. Now, honing, molding, trimming the fat off my faith and cutting things that are false, things that are not built on Scripture, and things that are unhealthy, that's a process that has been going on and I hope will go on till the day I die. But that's a, a real short Cliff Notes version of my, my descent to atheism, which was halted. It's too short. Let's touch back on it next time we talk. Okay. Because it's the, the there's a lot of leg room in there. Like there's a lot, and, and I would expect you to push back on some of it, especially the my, my personal feeling about how effective apologetics can be. Not always is, not always, but how effective apologetics Man. can be. Like I follow a lot of the, like I follow the great debate and its active participants really closely. Not as much in the last year or so as I did five years ago. Yeah, when I sort of adopted this idea of theological non-cognitivism, I've moved away from the great debate a little bit mm-hmm. because I think that some of the debate discussion, I just don't feel like I have. And, and um, to be honest, I'm not, I'm not really caught up on it either because my focus has, has lately moved to trying to understand the ancient foundations of the text to try to better understand where the original authors and the original audiences were coming from, to try to deconstruct our modern and postmodern interpretations to try to get back to the original. That's not necessarily an, an apologetic exercise. That's a no, hermeneutical exercise. Yes. Yeah. And so I haven't really been in the apologetics world as much lately. Sadly, the, my, my uh, primary interaction with the apologetics world lately has been um, – my heartbrokenness over the entire Ravi Zacharias situation. That is extraordinarily unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Not the mm-hmm. least of which because the number one most eloquent person of color in the entire apologetics world turned out to be a snake. And that just bothers me so much because I was so excited. For Did so you- long, I was excited that he was the face. He, not some white guy, but he was the face of Christian apologetics, and it just bothers me to my heart that that uh, that it turned we, out. We, we should it. stick a pin in this because one Indeed. thing I want to I want to push back on you is like to to dig into your take on the story of Ananias and Sapphira, mm-hmm. and how what their place was in in dispensation of just, justice. And how uh, it's it seems to be applied historically. Like we'll talk about it. Like mm-hmm. you know, but I want to drill in because I always wonder. It's like if Ananias and Sapphira were good enough to die for hiding money from the church, how does Creflo Dollar get away with what he gets away with? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, I think it's fair, especially if it, it would be directly applicable if somebody uh, steals money from God and does everything to hide it that that's not actually happening. Unfortunately, with the Joel Osteens and Creflo dollars, they're not doing a very good job of hiding it. They're um, almost like early 2000s rappers that can't believe how much money they have in Florida. <laughs> it's just, you know, it seems like the stealing money should be the worst thing than the hiding it. It seems that way, but it's not. And, and they are hiding it from the people that believe them and are giving them money. Those people that give Creflo Dollar money, mm-hmm. Creflo Dollar's nature 
He oh, disguises yeah. it from those people. Yeah, with the modern with with the, with the modern examples, yeah, it's the money's the issue. With Ananias and Sapphira, it was they wanted what um, Barnabas at the very last verse of the chapter previous. Barnabas had sold everything he had and gave it to the church, and because of that, Barnabas was honored as basically this great, wonderful apostle. And that's sure. what Ananias and Sapphira wanted for themselves. They just they wanted everybody to think they sold everything, but they didn't want to have to have sold everything to get that. Man, it, it it seems like we can differentiate between mm-hmm. Ananias and Sapphira versus like Creflo Dollar. It seems well, like we also, can, but also, only we, by splitting we, these weird hairs. Like we, we, we both lose, agree that it, it's we, wrong. We lose the we lose the narrative track of Acts if we also don't realize that Ananias and Sapphira is is intended to be a story that parallels the story of uh the rebellion in um exodus um the what's the name of the the dude the levite who rebels against moses oh Um, i don't remember it's been a long time since i took ot history it was it was uh uh, dathan and abiram and in fact that would have been second semester i took my cora's rebellion i took my old testament history final Tripping balls on DXM. <laughs> I took, and this will be my, this will be the last thing I say. I took my New Testament final, and uh, it was four questions. And uh, I was always this guy in seminary. I would, I would, <laughs> I would stay until you know we would be allowed to have two hours to do the the final, and I would stay for two hours and ten minutes, kind of thing. And I would write as much. So on the very first answer, there's several red marks. You know. Pr- professor says, oh, I'm not sure about this, or oh, this is a really good point. And at the top of the second question, it said, looks good. And at the top of the third question, it says, well, you obviously know what you're doing. A, he didn't even read the last two questions. <laughs> 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 and that was my, that was my last uh, history test uh, that I've ever taken until I go back to uh, get my master's in history, hopefully. And with that being said, I've had fun, guys. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we Why don't we put a pin on it and plan on picking this up some, sometime in the near future together again for I'm, Will I'm Part game. Three? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely more that we can talk about there. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, and anyway, if you, guys, if you guys ever need a, a panelist on something that doesn't focus on me, you need a Christian voice. By all means, you guys know where I'm at on the internet. Heck yeah, we do. Yeah, and you're a lot of fun to talk to. So yeah, well, I appreciate that. I enjoy this a lot. It's much, much less contentious than the Facebook arguments that I get into. <laughs> Man, those, those get nasty. So part of me, part of me thinks that if you took those same people and you put them in a position where they had to defend their position verbally, or even better, face to face, I don't think it would be anywhere near as contentious. Uh, An- well, anonymity, anonymity gives people a false warrant to just be cruel. Just that the insulation. And, well, and to, I admittedly egg some of it on just because it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not always trying to convince the person I'm arguing with. It's, it can just be fun sometimes. But, uh, I've yeah. recently been accused of being a lizard person paid off by the, uh, uh, not the Koch brothers. Who's the liberal? Oh, George Soros. George Soros. And What'd so I'll be, ex- I'll be expecting my, my money soon because uh, he could help me pay off my house. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, then, That's right. You know, then maybe with a little extra money, you could just have two houses. Well, not only that, but I'm conservative enough. The Koch brothers should be giving me some money too. 
But you're a you're a lizard person, so I assume That's, that you're getting paid yeah. in house flies yeah. and not dollars, right? <laughs> yeah, or some kind of crickets, hopefully. I just get called <laughs> chocolate a stupid, covered crickets or something. I just get called a stupid liberal idiot. So, <laughs> hey, oh, well. yeah, hey, you well, guys uh, have a good night. Yeah, yeah you indeed. too. Uh, anyone who would like to support the show, uh, we appreciate feedback. If you would like to go to the iTunes. Uh, uh, or the Apple Podcasts uh, directory and leave us a positive review. Uh, that actually helps our show in the ratings, so that would be appreciated. If you would like to gain access to exclusive content um, or you just want to financially support the show, you can become a subscribed member at our Patreon, uh, which you can find uh, by going to analyzepodcast.com and clicking on the uh, the link. If you'd like to become a guest, uh, you can also go to the site and click on the Become a Guest link and fill out the form. Um, we'll we'll reach out to you if uh, if you send us an email and maybe we'll have something interesting to analyze. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your week. Peace out. See you, man. Later. Later.